0: morning if you have your bibles grab those to ephesians turn those to ephesians chapter 5 right now if there's not If you did not bring a Bible with you, we want you uh, to have one, have it open, and so there should be a blue one uh, near you, a seat back in front of you or just to your left or right. Uh, Find it, get to page 816, I believe, Um, because especially on today of all days, we want you to know that uh, what we're talking about is not my opinion. It is the opinion of the Word of God, and that's the only one that matters. And so before uh, Heather comes up, you can make your way up, Heather. Before she reads this passage, I just want to kind of tell you that all the way back when we started Ephesians, um, the the pastoral staff here, the team here at FBM, we kind of circled this section of Ephesians that we're getting to today. Um, this through the end of chapter five, into chapter six, and uh, it's not that we weren't excited for the rest of it. We knew uh, what God could do through this portion of the book because um, very few things impact your life more than family and work, right? Um, that's what gets most of your time, most of your attention um, outside of Jesus. Forms most of your identity, and uh, and God has some very clear things uh, that he has for us when it comes to the design of marriage and how we should look at work. Um, and um, every time that we break outside of those, we just cause pain for ourselves, right? And, and um, as as a pastoral staff, we deal with people all the time who are dealing with the wake of that, uh, with the ramifications of pain that come from 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 punting on God's design and heading elsewhere, and so uh, we're excited to go through this uh, section with you for the next few weeks, um, just kind of talk about family God's way, and, and, uh, and we're, uh, we're praying that, uh, that it, it can make a big difference in your life, and so uh, Heather, if you would come up and read uh, today's passage, and if you're uh, physically capable, would you stand as she reads from Ephesians 5 today? Good morning. Wives, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church, submit to, the, to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. All right, let's pray. Father, this is your word. Uh, these are your people. This is your hour. This is your day. God, everything is yours. And so I pray that we uh, approach this time with, with that mindset. God, that we are here to hear from you. Um, we're here to learn from you, God. We're here to know what your word says about uh, our lives and about you. And we want to respond in humble obedience today. And we ask that, that whatever you see fit to do in this room over these next moments, that you get the glory out of all of it. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you can have a seat. <clears throat> so there was a group that recently surveyed uh, children and the age range of the kids were anywhere from, from like six to ten, and they just kind of asked them questions about uh, love and marriage and romance, and just kind of trying to get um, what trying to get a grasp on what a child's mindset is in these things. And you might expect some of the answers were pretty funny. Okay, um, so there's a series of questions they asked. One of them was, did they just ask kids to define what is marriage? And so Eric, a six year old, he said, marriage is when you get to keep your girl and you don't have to send her back to her parents. <laughs> That's shockingly accurate, right? That's right out of Genesis 2, okay? So Eric's going to go far in life, all right? Um, then they asked him, is it better to be singled or married? And so Anita, uh, age 8, she said it's better for girls to be single, but not for boys because boys need somebody to clean up after them. <laughs> Again, a lot of truth in the minds of these little ones, right? So then they, they asked him, how do you decide who to marry, okay? And I don't know 10-year-old Alan, but he's my favorite, Okay. Because here's what Alan says. He said, you got to find somebody who likes the same stuff. Like, if you like sports, she should like it that you like sports, and she should keep the chips and dip coming. It's going to be a while for poor Alan, isn't it? He's going to be single for a bit. Seven-year-old Brian said, well, it's not just how you look. Look at me, I'm handsome like anything, and I haven't got anybody to marry me yet. And Ava, who was eight, she said, one of the things, one of you should know how to write a check because even if you have tons of love, there's still gonna be a lot of bills. What's the right age to get married? 10 year old Camille. 23 is the best age because by then you've known the person forever. That's how a 10 year old would look at it, right? What does falling in love look like? Seven year old Glenn. If falling in love is anything like learning how to spell, I don't wanna do it because it takes too long. And then, uh, how do you make a marriage last, 10-year-old Ricky? You tell your wife that she looks pretty, even if she looks like a truck. (laughs) I don't know how a woman could look like a truck, but apparently Ricky's seen it, all right? Now, I don't know how you scored those, but from my perspective, the girls did a lot better than the guys, right? They just came out looking a lot smarter, but let's let's give all the kids this much, right? Even though it is widely experienced, Okay. Marriage, we would all agree, is tricky. Marriage can be complicated. It can be confusing. It can be challenging. And and some of this is just inherent in the design, right? What marriage is, it's the mingling of two souls, two lives into one. And the problem is that both those people are sinners, right? And so it's impossible for two souls, two sinful souls to be mingled together and that be effortless, right? But some of the challenges in marriage can be avoided, right? We've Muddy the waters. We've made marriage what it wasn't intended to be. We've added our own layers of confusion and chaos to it that have nothing to do with its original design. And the reason I use the word original design, do you know that God is the one who established marriage? It comes straight from him. It's not a legal arrangement created by human governments. It comes right from him. Genesis chapter 2. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife And they become one flesh. The important context in Genesis 2 is this is before sin entered and ruined creation. So even, even while things were perfect, God declared it was not good for man to be alone. So he created woman out of man and established marriage as the most sacred of all human relationships. And he had several purposes for this, ones that we hope to unpack for you over the next few weeks, but one that we're going to see directly from Ephesians 5 is that marriage is to be a grace-fueled picture of God's own covenant relationship with his people. Ephesians chapter 5 will tell us that our marriage should remind people of the way Christ loves and interacts with his church, which means a lot of things. But what it doesn't mean is this. It is not the picture that's displayed for us in romantic comedies and movies and shows and novels. Some of you in here may have seen the movie Jerry Maguire. If you haven't, count yourself fortunate, okay? It postures as if it's a sports movie, right? The poster has a football player on it. They act like it's all about sports agents, all this stuff. It's not, by the way. It's just romantic junk, okay? But the most iconic scene from the movie is Tom Cruise's character, Jerry Maguire, rushes across the country to find Renee Zellweger's character and he shows up and he starts expressing his love to her and he stares at her in that creepy way that only Tom Cruise can, right? And he says, you complete me, right? And you're just like, wow, that's weird, okay? And it gets weirder because Renee Zellweger's character, then she says, she's through tears, she's like, shut up, just shut up, you had me at hello, right? You know what she should have said? Shut up, just shut up because you don't put that on me, right if if you're dependent on me to complete you you're the definition of a stage 5 clinging you psycho get out of my house but this is the way that love is portrayed right that, this thinking that your future spouse will complete you that this this epic romantic love story that's effortless will be yours because you've seen it portrayed what happens when people believe this they find out after they get married their spouse is just as much a mess as they are and they've been set up to fail Because not a single human being can fulfill such expectations. Now, I'm I'm passionate about this because I have four daughters, and all of them have me wrapped around their finger. Those girls have my heart. And I want them to get married one day. You know, once I'm dead. (laughs) When that day comes, when I'm long and gone, right, my prayer is not that they'll look for a man to complete them. You know what I want? I want them to be so rooted in their identity in Jesus Christ that they know their value, they know their dignity, they know their worth. And so whatever men come knocking need to treat them like the valuable prize that they are instead of looking for self-worth in that man. And so, yes, we we have made a mess of love and romance and marriage in countless ways. But just because we've made a mess of it doesn't mean the institution is to blame. We're to blame. Right? And since God instituted marriage, that, that alone gives it weight, it gives it sanctity, it gives it value. And you won't hear us, at any point in these next few weeks, you're never going to hear us uh, say this, that a good marriage is easy. But man, let me ask you, what worth having in this life comes easy? And so here's why I'm excited about not just today, but the next few weeks too. Because the family structure in Terre Haute, and not just in Terre Haute, but, but all of America, I'd say around the world, the family structure is crumbling, it's breaking. And what has broken our families is the same thing that has broken us. It's sin. But in Jesus Christ, you understand, don't you, that we have a redeemer who transforms things that have been broken by sin. That in Jesus Christ, we have a creator who, if we follow his design, right, we avoid a plethora of self-inflicted wounds and pains, all right, so I'm thrilled that we get to, as a church, go back to the source, right? Go back to the originator, designer himself and look at how God has arranged and set up and designed family and marriage and work and more. And I don't know this morning, right, what each of your individual uh, statuses of life are. But please, listen, don't check out on any of these because you'd think they don't apply to you. So if you're married, man, next few weeks, easy buy-in, easy relevance to you. If you're here this morning and you're divorced that I need you to hear our heart this morning. Our goal is not to perform an autopsy in your marriage. Our goal is not to bring up past pains, right? Our goal is not for you to study this and somehow increase your bitterness towards your ex, right? Because all divorce is the result of sin, and the Bible says to look at your sin first. We're not here to pile on you. We're here to try and show you of, of what, how God has set us up to avoid some pains in the future. And if you're single, here's what I tell you. It's never too early to start prepping for this. It's never too early to start thinking of these things. It's never too early to start setting values because the decisions you are making right now are affecting your marriage. Absolutely. And so for the rest of Ephesians 5, right, what Paul is gonna deal with is marriage. And he will break down for us God's design for marriage. And there's a couple really important clarifications before we dive into that. And, and, And here's one. What these verses are describing are what we'd call a Christian marriage. And what I mean by that is that both both husband and wife are followers of Jesus. And and why does this matter? Because what the husband is called to and what the wife is called to in Ephesians 5 is directly tied to their devotion to Christ. And so the whole foundation of God's design for marriage is that Jesus is at the center of it. And, And nothing that we're going to read here in Ephesians 5 can be built on any other foundation than that. Which is why, by the way... It has been taught since Jesus that Christians should not be unequally yoked. That someone who loves Jesus, who follows Jesus, should not enter into a marriage covenant with someone who doesn't. Because the heart of that is not exclusivity. The heart of that is this, that marriage is a spiritual connection deep down at the soul level. And if your heart and your devotion and your soul belong to Jesus, why would you ever to a spiritual connection with somebody who can't possibly grasp that? It's a starting point of marriage based on God's design is that both husband and wife have mutually submitted themselves to the lordship of Jesus. So if you're here, let me, let me say a quick word about that. If you're here and you don't know Jesus, I want you to know that we are thrilled that you're here. And not only that, we want to thank you for coming because, because for the rest of us, this is a really comfortable experience this morning. But for you, you stepped outside your comfort zone and worldview to check out something that is new to you. And you should be committed for that. And if you're here and you're hoping to get help in your marriage, that's a good starting point. There are definitely principles in Ephesians 5 that will help any marriage because the principles of God's word are true and beneficial and helpful across the board. But here's what we want you to know this morning. The principles in the word of God aren't worth comparing to the person the word of God points us to. The principles aren't worth comparing to Jesus. Because to know Jesus is to know life and to know truth and to know hope and purpose and freedom. And and we're for you. We're we're for your marriage. We're on your team. But what our heart is most passionate about this morning is that you would know Jesus. Because you are a sinner. And that doesn't make you different than us. It makes you just like us. And that sin has separated you from God. And this is a big deal. Because in that separation, left to yourself and your own good works and your own devices, you have zero chance this morning of forgiveness of sin, zero chance of eternal life in heaven. And so Jesus Christ pursued you in light of that. He came and he took on our form and lived the sinless life that we could not live. And then he died on the cross as a substitute for the things that we did wrong. And he rose from the dead. And the Bible says that if you believe in him, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that he is Lord, that your sins will be forgiven, that eternal life will be yours in Christ Jesus, and God's spirit will come take up residence in, in you. And out of that relationship, out of that connection, out of that devotion, can you now begin to follow his principles. So we're for you, we are. We want you to have a better marriage. We do, but far greater than anything this morning, you must know, we want you to know Jesus. And that's what we offer you today. All right, so with the world's longest introduction out of the way, let's come to Ephesians 5. And as you noted, when Heather wrote, I'm sure you picked up on it, today we're looking at the wise role in marriage. Okay, and so let's get some objections out of the way. What do I know about being a wife? Nothing, never been one. okay. I have no, no experience in this, and so I want you to know I'm not telling you, I'm not telling you how to be a wife today, okay, because who cares what I think? What I'm going to do is I'm going to do my best to show you what God's word says, and he's the authority, okay? Why are we doing women first? Really simple. We stopped at verse 21 last week, and so in verse 22 this week. That's it, okay? We didn't choose women first because we got a lot of problem with you women, and now we're going to talk about it. That's not how it went, all right? And what about the guys? Don't worry. We've got a doozy for them next Sunday, Okay? So, spouses, please listen to me on this. You make a terrible Holy Spirit. And what I mean by that is as, as we go through this over the next couple of weeks, here's what I don't want to see you doing. You listen to this? Right? I don't want you I don't want you driving home and you're like, you know, everything he talked about today, you're not doing right I don't I don't you to use this study as as ammo to belittle or criticize your spouse help me so help me men if I hear any of you saying Pastor Brett said you need to submit to me keep my name out your mouth okay (laughs) I don't want that right instead men husbands here's what you should do today ask God and ask yourself how can I love my wife in a way that actually encourages her and enables her to be what God has called her to be and then next week, as we go over what you're called to, ask God and ask yourself, how am I falling short of this standard and what do I need to repent of? Ladies, flip that, okay? This week, ask yourself, well, how, am I, how am I falling short of this? And next week, how can I love my man in a way that pushes him to this? All right, now let's look where Heather read first, verse 22. I'm gonna read through verse 25 just so we throw a little nugget in for the men this morning as well. Ephesians 5:22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife. As Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, what you need to know as we're going to study this back part of Ephesians 5 is that uh, a part of God's design for marriage has been assumed in these verses. And the reason it's been assumed is that Paul is the one who's established this church. Paul has already taught them these things. And so uh, there's, there's sort of a, a foundational basis, a quick overview on how God has set up marriage that is assumed and not expressed. He's telling you how to live it out. And so just to do a quick overview, even though this is probably base 101 for some of you, but in today's day and age, this needs to be said, okay? Marriage is a God-ordained relationship between one man and one woman, Okay? And in that context, that is the context through which we are to multiply and fill the earth. That is the context to which children are to be raised. And the husband and dad is charged with loving headship over the family. And the wife and the mom is charged with being his helper in that. And that is not a demeaning term, by the way. It's the same term God uses for himself. And we see from these verses, there's two main callings on each member, each partner of the marriage. Husbands are to love their wives just like Christ loves the church. And wives are to submit to their husbands just as the church submits to Christ. And both of those demand further explanation. Okay, But you need to know, it's impossible to to talk about one without mentioning the other because this design is, is reliant on both parties picking up the slack. And so today... We're going to try to keep the, the focus on "wise," and I really want to zoom in on this word submission. Okay. And the reason I want to do that is because submission is one of those words that very few people have no reaction to. In fact, some of you are already on edge, right? You're already up in arms. I'm going to tell you, just breathe. Just breathe, okay? Because I want to walk you through this morning what submission is and what it isn't. Because what we can't do is bring our own presuppositions into this. We can't define that word based off of our own experiences, our own feelings, and then decide that we're going to be offended by it. Instead, let's try to best understand what the Bible means when it uses the word submit. And what I would tell you is this, that submission is valued dearly by God and that all of us are called to it. We are all called to submit to the authority of Jesus Christ. We're all called to submit to our government authorities. We're all called to submit to our church leaders. Children are called to submit to their parents. Uh, We are called to, in verse 21, we read last week, that we are called to submit to one another, both in marriage and in the church. Right, And so a life of submission is a huge facet of the Christian life. And yes, each of those submissions have... Uh, some unique aspect to them, but they also have similarities throughout. And so to help us understand this morning what submission is not, i want to look at another passage in the New Testament that deals with wives and submission uh, that addresses this. It's going to be in 1 Peter chapter 3. And so even though we're going to put this on the screens for you when we read it, we're, we're going to sit here for a bit. So if you wouldn't mind, if you have a copy of Scriptures, turn in there with me. Uh, if, you're in, uh, if you're in the Blue Bibles, it's going to be page 851. And we're going to read First uh, Peter uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. <laughs> Excuse me. It says this, Wives, in the same way, submit, to your, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. ...when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment... ...such as elaborate hairstyles... ...and the wearing of gold, jewelry, or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self... ...the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit... ...which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past... ...who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands... ...like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham... ...and called him her Lord. And you are her daughters if you do what is right... ...and do not give way to fear. Now, why did I choose 1 Peter 3? Because if you didn't like Ephesians 5, you really don't like 1 Peter 3. Okay. And so it's perfect, right? It's perfect to make the point that I want to make. It's a perfect candidate to show you what submission is not. Because what happens is we, get, we take a couple phrases in that and we lose sight of everything said. Right? In this passage, right, Peter is... Writing to wives, there's at least a large portion that he's assuming uh, wives are uh, wives of unbelievers, right? And so um, and this, and he, he's, the wife has given her life to Christ, and the husband has not yet. And he starts with the exact same calling, First Peter 3, verse 1. Submit, right? Submit to your husbands. But then he keeps writing. And as he keeps writing, under that context, that heading, what, what we can see is what submission is not. And so I want to show you these things. Number one, submission is not agreeing on everything. Did you notice that the husband and wife don't agree on everything here? She has surrendered her life to Jesus. He has not. And so submission does not mean that she sacrifices her will. It doesn't mean that she checks her brain at the door, right? This is consistent throughout scripture. Uh, 1 Corinthians 7, Paul is writing to uh, those who have unbelieving spouses. He says, as long as it's up to you, right, you stay submitted, you stay committed to that marriage, you stay in that marriage, but if your spouse, literally just cannot get over the fact that you belong to Jesus now, then you let them, you can let them go if they want to leave. Acts chapter 4, again and again, we are told to submit to the authorities over us, and yet we find Peter and John and other apostles standing before the Sanhedrin, and they command them to stop preaching in the name of Jesus. You know what they say to them? We'll let you decide what you think is right, whether we should listen to you or listen to God. And they go out and start preaching the name of Jesus. Right? The wives here in 1 Peter 3, they're not muzzled puppets. They think for themselves. And on top of that, did you see what Peter called them to do? They're to influence their husbands. Right? Submission is not giving up your influence. Wives absolutely need to encourage their husbands to pursue the faith and to lead the family well and to be an example for their kids. Wives must call their husbands on their junk. Right? You know why? Because Corinne knows me more than anyone else on this planet. And if she never graciously pointed out my sin, I'd be in trouble. If she never tried to influence me towards Jesus more and more and point me to him, there'd be a huge facet of our relationship that is missing. I need her to do those things. Submission is also not making your husband Lord. Yeah, Sarah called Abraham Lord, but did you notice that was all lowercase? You have one Lord, cabs. And that Lord is Jesus Christ, and both husband and wife are to submit to him. And so should your husband ever want to lead the family into sin or in an unwise direction that will hurt the family of the spiritual health of marriage, your allegiance first and foremost, is to Jesus. Ladies, your identity is in Jesus. He's the root of your value. He's the root of your significance, He's the root of your purpose. So submitting to your husband does not mean he replaces Jesus on the throne of your life. In fact, it's the opposite. Because what we can see here is that submission is not an abdication of your responsibility to pursue Jesus. One of the ways that they were called to influence their husbands is by the purity and reverence of their lives. It would be by having such a deep devotion to Christ that the husband literally can't help but notice and desire it. Because yeah, it is true that spiritual headship falls on the man. I'm going to stand before God one day. And I'm going to have to give an account to him of how I led and how I pointed my wife and my daughters to Christ. And that is a very heavy thing, one which we will expound on more next week. But listen to me, whether the husband does that or whether he doesn't will eventually be between him and the Lord. The wife's responsibility is to passionately pursue the Lordship of Jesus in her life as well. Ladies, read the word. Get to know Christ, pray, serve him, seek to have him influence your life more and more and more. And do not rely on your husband to do it for you or use his failing to do so as an excuse for your own failing. That's not allowed on submission. So submission is not agreeing on everything. It's not giving up your influence. It's not making your husband Lord. It's not abdicating you of the responsibility to pursue Jesus. If you have saved your spot in Ephesians 5, turn back there. Because now we need to talk about what submission is. Hey. We define what it is, and let's let's look at what it is based off what Paul tells us here in Ephesians 5. Number one, it is giving yourself to God's design. Submission to a husband must be preceded by submission to Jesus. And starts with this recognition that He is Lord, He is God, He's the King of Kings, and I'm not. And I know that He's good, so that what He asks of me I can deduce must be for my good. And so it was Eugene Peterson who said that he wrote this, that most of the Bible is only understood when it's obeyed. You understand what he's saying there? That as we, as we approach God's word, we as sinners approaching the word of a holy divine God, we're going to constantly be called to things and asked to do things that our human nature doesn't want to do. And so we're going to respond with, with some resistance and some confusion. Why would I ever do that? But what we find is when we submit to them and obey them, we find joy in them. Whenever we do what God's word tells us to, we find this brilliant idea. Turns out God knew what he was doing all along. And so today's passage, this exact passage, Ephesians 5, 22 to 24, and a few others, are often dismissed in our day under the same objection. You know what the objection is? It's a different culture now. Right? It's 2019. Humanity has progressed and evolved. It's, it's a different time. And so I'd, I'd like to just pause for a second and just address that real quick. Because I don't think that people know what they're actually saying when they say that. One of the reasons I stand before you every week it's so sold out to Jesus is because he's unlike anything else out there. There's no comparing him to any, anyone or anything else. And though Christianity is not a religion, right, I, I will fight anyone who says that it is, right, it is a relationship with the God who made you. You see this when you can compare Christianity with other religions, right? First sure. of all, did you know that in all other religions, there is no central source of consistent truth that they can lean on? Okay, let's take a couple. In Islam, right, truth is progressive. Do you know that? So Muhammad, in early on, he claimed that he got a vision from heaven and he started writing the Quran and he filled out the first half of it, but at some point, things just, things just weren't catching on like he had envisioned, right? Things weren't going like he wanted, and so he said he got a second vision, and then he writes the second half of the Quran, And by the way, the second half of the Quran is completely different than the first half. In fact, there are over 500 contradictions in the second half of the Quran from the first half. And, 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 and Islam has had to come up with a, with a theology of explaining these contradictions. And the explanation is that truth evolved. Right. Same with the Mormon church. The Mormon church actually teaches that, that God is still evolving himself. And so God is capable today of changing his mind on something he said in the past. And so all he need to do is tell the Mormons' main prophet, and it could be a whole brand new truth, and they have to follow it. Right? And so literally, they could be told today something different than they've been told their entire existence. You know what stands in contrast to all of that? This book, the Bible, the Word of God. And guess in the book, in the very start of this book in Genesis, we find the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. Do you know what we find at the very end of the book, the very last chapter in Revelation? We see the tree of life again. Now, why do I bring that up? It's because over hundreds of years of revelation, God was telling the exact same story of redemption. Because we're told that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And what you have in the Bible is God's full revelation of himself to us. That in Jesus and in his word, God has revealed himself to us in the fullest way that he wants to. It is the living, breathing, active word of God that penetrates even to soul and spirit. It is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training for all acts of righteousness. Because the Bible is the God-breathed, fully formed, inerrant, powerful, life-giving, authoritative sword of the Lord and the word of God. And that's a good time to say amen, by the way. This is why we stand when we read this book. And it's why we then sit under it to submit to it. And it's a long, long way to this point. The truths in here are unchanging. They're unchanging. And what you need to know is that when this was written, the Bible was already profoundly countercultural. And this is why. Because God does not operate by the collective groupthink of sinners. This notion, right, that the Bible needs to conform to our culture is completely upside down. We don't measure the Bible to us. We measure ourselves to the Bible. And so, yeah, this idea of a wife submitting to her husband might be maligned. It might be criticized. It might be panned. It might even be hated in this day. But submission to the Lord first says, God, it's your design, not mine. And you are the authority, and so I will listen to you. Submission is also giving yourself To a vision that is greater than your own. Paul lists uh, two reasons why a wife should submit in these verses. And the two reasons are, number one, the lordship of Jesus. And number two, the headship of her husband. Now I want you to know, in verse 22, some of you with with the newer version of the NIV, it says, submit yourselves to your own husband as you do the Lord. Okay? And that language is a little tricky there. But what I want you to know is that's not talking about equal levels of submission. And we've already discussed this before. Your husband does not become the Lord of your life. That is Jesus, right? What that is saying, the Greek phrasing there is this, that in your submission to Jesus, an outflow of this is you submit to your husband. This is part of your service to King Jesus. And so twice here at the end of chapter five, he equates this to the church. In verses 22 to 24, as the church submits to Christ, so a wife should submit to her husband. And then in verses 25 to 32, as Jesus loves his church, Right? sacrifices himself for, gives himself up for, that is how a husband is to love his wife. Right? And then I love, and this is just an aside, and I probably don't have time for it, but that's okay. I love that at the end of this, Paul admits there's even a level of mystery here. And the reason why I love that is, is, is we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, and all our strength. But as we love the God with all our mind and we intellectually pursue him, we must never, ever give up the idea of mystery. That he has revealed himself to the fullest nature he chooses to in this word, but he is God, and his ways are not our ways, and his thoughts are not our thoughts. And so they are so high above us, there will always be some level of mystery as we approach him. The design in marriage is this. Here's what Ephesians 5 says, that your marriage is to bring glory to Jesus Christ if you follow God's design, right, you're going to be painting a picture of the loving, submissive, grace-fueled relationship that Jesus has with his own people. Right? That's why the church is called the bride of Christ. And if you do so, you're going to make people desire what Jesus can do in their own lives, in their own homes, in their own marriages. And so part of, part of your submission is realizing that as a follower of Jesus, this isn't the only area, by the way, as a follower of Jesus, you are to live for a greater vision than your own. And so as followers of Jesus, we are all the time called to give up all sorts of things, all sorts of desires and wants and wishes to bring him glory. And it's not a burden or a duty to do so. It's a privilege and an honor because of what he's done for us. Thirdly, we have to be honest this morning. Submission is also taking a risk. It's taking a risk of love because this design that God has set up is dependent on both Sides carrying their weight. And so what that means is, in this design, the husband is given incredible capacity for good and incredible capacity for evil. Your husband has the immense capability to help you flourish and grow and become who God created you to be. He can encourage your strengths. He can embolden your faith. He can ignite your confidence. He can give you tremendous security in his love. And he can also suppress all that and extinguish all that and destroy all that and worse. Since marriage has been founded, men have been found to be capable of doing untold horrors to their wives. Which is why it is so important, so crucially important, ladies, that you choose wisely. Listen, I know I get it, right? Attraction has a role to play. It's important at the beginning. Right? But I'll, I'll say this to both genders, okay? If you choose your mate specifically solely on attraction, you just need to know that time is undefeated. Gravity wins, okay? Things start wrinkling. It just doesn't look like it used to, right? You need to know this, right? And there, there are wise things that you can look at, ladies. These, these, are, these are good, wise things you can look at. How does he care for the women in his life? How does he treat his mom? If he has sisters, how does he protect them? How does he look out for them? Is he respectful to his female friends? How about just, how does he talk about women? Is he always disparaging? he always criticizing? He's always telling jokes. Does he treat them with honor and value? But man. Those are good things, but by far the most important, hear me, by far the most important, does he love Jesus more than you? Does he love Jesus more than he loves you? Because I can tell you as a dad, I'm already praying that my girls don't marry someone who isn't as strong spiritually as they are. Because with this design that God has set up, to enter into that would be starting behind the eight ball. It would start a built-in tension in the marriage already. Can you imagine for a second? Can you imagine what it would do to a young man if a girl that he loved wouldn't date him or wouldn't marry him because she told him he wasn't serious enough about Jesus? That would wake him right up. Listen, ladies, set a high, high, high bar and do not settle. It's not on you. Don't don't get me wrong. It's not on you to foster men who love and care about Jesus but you can help and dismissing those who come calling who aren't serious would go a really long way because you have to understand to submit to your husband is to give him incredible capacity for good and harm and if you're in a place this morning where you can still be choosy hear me be choosy find one worth submitting to and don't give in until you do number four the posture submission is just a posture of humility Right, the Greek word submission literally means to surrender authority to. Not because he deserves it, he doesn't, okay? He's not Jesus, but because your life isn't about you anymore. Because your submission to Jesus does not make you allergic to humility, but desiring of it. If you always, listen, I just, I'll tell you this, and I'll try to say it lovingly. It won't sound like it, but trust me, it's lovingly. Ladies, if you always want to be in control... If you brag about how you run everything, you run the show in your life, if you, if you have a level of pride in how you dominate things, just please know this morning, Jesus isn't impressed. He's not impressed. Because as the single greatest authority in the universe, the one who had all the power at his fingertips, he submitted to the will and plan of his Father to become one of us and die on a cross. He's not impressed when we brag about how we control things. There is an, there is an image of this that, that fits me. I hope it helps you. Um, but I understand I'm, I'm a guy, so sports help me, but I hope you get this. Uh, the Tony Dungy era Colts for my favorite football team. Right, that's the seven or eight years that he was there in Indy. I, I love that team. Uh, Peyton Manning, Bob Sanders, Reggie Wayne, uh, Marvin Harrison, all of them, right? And there's, there's a video uh, that was taken of this team on the sideline once that I think is, is a great example of what submission that Ephesians 5 is talking about looks like. And so I, want, I, ha- I looked it up, and I was gonna show it to you. But they're grown men playing football, And they use grown men words, right? And so we're not going to play it, okay? So I'm just going to describe it to you. And what happened, the context behind this is this was a Monday night game against the Rams sometime in the early 2000s. And the Colts had gotten down near the end zone. They had a first and goal and they threw the ball three straight times without running it and they didn't score a touchdown. And so there was a skirmish on the sidelines. The skirmish was based on this. At the time, uh, the coaches had immense confidence in Peyton Manning as the quarterback, and so what they actually did is that he had a headset in his helmet, and he would, they would call in three plays, two running plays and a passing play. And, and he said, you have these three plays to choose from. And he would stand there behind the line of scrimmage, look at what the defense is doing, and he would decide which play to run. And so whatever he called the team had to run. Well, in this setup, they got in on the goal line, and he called a pass three straight times, and all three of them failed. And Jeff Saturday, who was the center on the offensive line, how should I put this? He expressed his discontentment. <laughs> right he went over to Peyton and he said next time we're down there you run the ball and they walked away and you can see Peyton on the side he's just kind of fuming and then he stands up and he goes over and he just starts screaming to jeff saturday and they're going back and forth and they're both acting tough right until Tarek glenn steps up now if you don't know the colts of the 2008 era tarot glenn was six eight over 300 and just a ripped beast of a man and the second he entered the conversation you watch Peyton manning go like we're cool we're cool there's nothing here <laughs> right, you know and he's, he's just gone right And all of it was just, they were were giving their opinion, they were expressing, they were fighting about the plays that were being called. But I want you to think about it, right? Jeff Saturday was not silently submitting, was he? He was influencing, right? He was standing up for what he thought was right. He was giving his input, but what happened when he was on the field and the pass was called instead of the run? He ran the play that was called. Whether he liked it or not. Do you know one of the best, I still think, one of the best things for my soul Uh, Was that I got to be, I got to serve under someone in church capacities. That I sat on leadership boards that I didn't have the final say in the room. And in those closed door meetings I could fight for how I thought things should go. I could express my opinion for, for the vision that I think the ministry should follow. But if in that room a different direction than the one I wanted was decided, I knew that it was my role to walk out of that room and cheer on that decision as if it was my own. That's the mission headship of the family is given to the father, to the husband, and if he's worth anything at all, men, he will, when he makes decisions, decide what is best for his family and best for his wife first and consider himself last. Because men, and we're getting ahead to next week, but if you act as a dictator and you call all the shots down, the smallest details, and you take control of things that your wife is better at than you, you prove you have no idea what loving headship is. You've been given the headship for the good of your family, for the good of your wife, and for the good of you far, far last. And a wife's submission to that is simply this it's her willing disp- disp- disposition to her husband's authority, it's her delighting in him. to to actually take the initiative of leading the family towards good. It's it's her not wanting to resist him, understanding how hard it becomes on her when he is passive and he punts on this and she's gotta be the one to keep the family together. Listen, man, there there are several ladies in my life and I I don't throw this word out lightly. They're my heroes. And the reason they are is because I, I know their situation and their husbands have simply punted on the responsibility of being the spiritual head of the home. And when you know them, it's, it's easy to see the wake of pain and the wake of destruction and horror from those decisions and the passivity of that sin, right? And these ladies are my heroes because they keep fighting the good fight. They're giving it all for their families. They're praying for them. They're serving them. They're putting out fire after fire after fire. And they're literally, if you talk to them, they're hanging on by the grace of God. And I'm convinced of two things after observing them. Number one, their reward is great. By them choosing to stay devoted to Jesus, despite the situations, the ideal being completely lacking, he's gonna, they honor him and he will honor them. He sees them, he loves them, and he is and will reward them. If that's you this morning, God sees you, he loves you, he's with you in this. Secondly, what I'm convinced of is this. There's not a one of them that would quibble over God's design here in Ephesians 5. They wouldn't for one second get up in arms over a word like submit if their husband would just for once show loving, godly headship. They would welcome it like water to a parched tongue. This is already long, so we've got to wrap it up. And so I want to do so quickly by just simply asking this. Why do this, wives? Why do this? Why would you obey a command like this that might grate against your nature? Number one is simply this, because you're submissive to Jesus. Listen, life stopped being about you the day you gave your life to Christ. Sometimes we don't like that, but it's true. So what happens now that we belong to Jesus, when he says we do something, we do it. And so when his commands don't make sense to us at first, they don't look desirable to us at first, we trust him more than the command, and we say to ourselves, he is for me, he is good, he is love, and if this is what he wants from me, I will do it and trust that it's for my good. Secondly, we do this, you do this because it's God's design. I've said it before. We'll say it again multiple times over these weeks. The God is the one who established marriage. He's the one who designed it. He's the originator of it. So number one, we don't get to change it. Right? We didn't make it, so we don't get to change it. Number two, it'd be really wise of us to just trust the creator of it. Right? I'd rather my marriage resemble God's design than something I came up on my own, wouldn't you? And then, sir, the last one. It really is for your good. It really is. And, and hear me, no matter how it plays out. I know in a room this size, some of y'all are gonna hear this today and, and resist it. You, you, know, you know what, I'm not giving into that. I don't like that. And if, in doing so, you're gonna miss out on a huge blessing. And some of you will do this and you are doing this and, and your marriage is stronger because of it and, you, and you've never regretted it. And some of you may do this, listen to me, some of you may do this and it goes really poorly. It's not because God's design was wrong, but because your husband didn't keep his end of the deal. If that happens, I'm not going to lie to you, there'll be pain down that road. Not because you submitted, but because of his sin. But I still stand before you today, no matter how this plays out, it will be for your good. Because through it, you will get more of Jesus. I'll never forget the day that I learned this lesson so powerfully. It was August 2nd, 2012. And I was pacing in the back of a sanctuary of a church in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Because in two hours, I was going to preach uh, my grandpa Parks' funeral. Now, I'm grateful, man. I'm grateful that I actually had the privilege of preaching all four of my grandparents' funerals. But I can tell you that building up to them, I was just a mess. But that that day, I was just back there pacing. I was nervous, trying to think about what I was going to say. and, And that's when I saw her. I saw my grandma Parks' sitting all by herself in a wheelchair, and my heart broke for her. Because just, just about a year before, I'd been in that same church for another funeral and watched as my grandparents buried their daughter. And now I'm looking at her, and here she is again, having lost her husband of more than six decades. And I decided I need to shift out of grandson Brett into pastor Brett, and I need to go over and encourage her and comfort her. And man, I was wrong. Because she ended up comforting me because for the next 40 minutes, I got an uninterrupted conversation with my grandma. And I'm, I'm going to tell you, that was by far the longest uninterrupted conversation we'd ever had. And here's why. Grandpa Parks was a great man, but he was a big personality. He was a World War II vet, he was a football coach, teacher, principal, but by far his favorite role was storyteller. And so all our family gatherings would be him. I'm not even kidding, literally center stage. We would all sit in circles around him, and he'd tell stories, and he'd laugh, and he'd come into the room, and he was always the life of the party, and grandma was always off to the side. Little scene, never heard from And there were levels of this that always bothered me, right? There's times growing up I noticed, and I'm like, man, this, this just doesn't feel right. And then I saw something that really bothered me when it became time to eat. Because whenever we'd have to eat at these family gatherings, grandma would get up from over in the corner. She would go and make a plate and bring it to grandpa. And he would tell her whether he was pleased with this plate or whether there was something else he wanted on it. And she would go back and get more and then bring him food. And only when he was satisfied would she then go get her food. And I would watch this and get upset and look at him like, just get your own dang food, man. It's not that hard. It's just right over there, right? Until this day in august of 2012 and in talking to you i realized that what picture that painted was less about him and more about her because the picture that was being painted was her humility and her grace and her submission and on this day the day that she was going to bury her husband not long after burying her daughter i didn't find someone whose faith was shaken because in that conversation, and this was my loss, by the way, is in that conversation that I learned for the first time in my life that my grandma, this quiet, submissive, unseen person, had the strongest, most unshakable faith of anyone I'd ever met. And she waxed eloquently about the sufficiency of Jesus about how she marveled at his grace, about how he was carrying her in that moment and just how much she loved him and how she was looking forward to, to being with grandma, Grandpa and Aunt Marion once more. And eventually there were some other people who came to the line and I had to walk away to look over my remarks one more time. But when I walked away, it hit me that all those years of her emptying herself did not leave her empty at all. Because when she emptied herself, she was filled with Jesus and she didn't regret it one little bit. So, Corinne, make my food today. No, I'm kidding, all right? (laughs) I wanted to tell that joke. I didn't want to step on that moment, but it was right there, right? Listen, that was a joke. Please know it was a joke, all right? There is a way, there is a way that you can experience the fullest joys of the marriage relationship There's a way that you can bring God glory and feel a deep and strong connection to your spouse. You can be known and be loved and you can get more and more of Jesus but it does not come by you looking out for yourself. It does not come by you putting yourself first. It does not come by arranging your marriage to your own design and desires. It comes by you first submitting to Jesus and then submitting to his design for your life and your home. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that that you are the designer, you are the creator, you're the originator of marriage, Lord. And so uh, we know that in this this relationship of two sinful beings trying to trying to give this thing a go, uh, trying to make it make it work, uh, we know that that there's going to be lots of different times where it feels on shaky ground, it feels unsettled. I'm so thankful that we have the rock of your word and the rock of your design to come back to. Lord, I pray for the marriages in this room that exist and the ones that will come in the future. Lord, that we would simply get out of the way of your design, that we would, we would stop bringing our own selfish desires into it. We'd stop uh, wanting to control or command or commandeer, Lord, that the, but both husband and wife would just submit to you and would submit to your design that we play our roles the way we're supposed to. God, for the marriages in this room right now that are on the brink, I pray that Jesus would do what he does, that he would transform things that have been broken by sin, that he would pull their feet out of the mud and set them on the solid rock. God, for the ones that are strong, we know they can be strong, but thank you that we have a lifetime. In your design, we have a lifetime to get this right and that your grace never runs out. And then lastly, Jesus, we pray for anybody who's in this room today and who have not given their life to Jesus Christ. That this, to this point, they have tried to be their own God and their own answer. That they would see the folly in that. They would see the hopelessness in that. That they would trust and believe in him for the forgiveness of their sins and the gift of eternal life. And we ask all this in his powerful and mighty name. Amen. So before our worship team leads you in one last song, we'd like to give you uh, just a couple moments to spend uh, just between you and the Lord, just to pray. If you need some guidance, we've got some stuff on the screens, but this is really just your time to kind of respond to some things that he put on your heart this morning.